Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. Good morning, Grace Point Church, and thank you for being here. If you'd please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you'd like to follow along with the reading this morning and need a Bible, they can be found in the seatbacks in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one with you. Or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them, for we would love to have for you to have God's Word in your hand throughout the week. Today's scripture will be taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, and that can be found in those Bibles on page 979. Please follow along with me as I read. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you today, God. Thank you for just being an awesome God. Thank you for your salvation, the joy, and the peace that you have given us. God, I pray that you would be with Jason as he brings the word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Man, we did it. We started this um, series uh, in Ephesians. Uh-oh, I'm locked out of my iPad. That, yeah, but I got, I got this too. Like, I got it, I got it with me. It, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Uh, but we started Ephesians 17 weeks ago, and we complete the series today. So we're real creative around here. We do a book of the Bible. If it's called Ephesians, then we brand it Ephesians. That's just kind of what we do. So we're going to wrap that up. Man, we have gone through, I should have added them up and figured them up before today, but I didn't. But it's a joy that we get to walk through uh, books of the Bible together. That's my favorite way to teach and preach. It's kind of what we do here at Grace Point is take a book, go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That's our favorite way. And you may wonder, well, where are we going next? Well, next uh, week, we start a new series called Beyond Obedience, and it is going to be a bit more topical. I think it's going to be the first uh, topical series we've done in a couple of years, but you guys have been asking for it. We got a ton of uh, moms and dads who are like, hey, I know kids are a blessing, but I don't feel blessed, you know, like right now. Like, so help, help me, help us with that. And so you may wonder, hey, if I'm not a parent of little kids, should I be here for the next four weeks? The answer is yes, you should, especially after what you're gonna hear in the sermon today. Yes, this is for all of us. Maybe you don't have little ones, maybe you used to have little ones, but you were a little one. And we've all had parents, and uh, we've experienced good parenting and bad parenting, but we've all got a good dad uh, and Father God if we are his. And so I hope that it's going to be, I know it'll be a helpful series, and I hope all of y'all will find it that way, that it'll be for everyone, even as we talk to moms and dads. Um, it's, it's going to be good. So that's going to start up uh, next week, and then we're going to spend some time in Jonah. We're going to get in the Old Testament and walk through another book uh, of the Bible after those four weeks are up. So... Um, I just want to kind of get going here by asking you to remember if you've been a Christian for a while. So I, I got saved when I was seven. I literally got thrown out of, we call it uh, children's church in the little Baptist church that I grew up in. I got thrown out one morning. Uh, I got thrown out on the regular, to be honest with you. Um, it's just the truth. So like if, if you know, someone comes in here this morning and you get one of these and you're like, yeah, what is it? And they're like, hey, your kid bit all the kids. <laughs> Uh, I was that kid. So if that gives you any hope, you know, maybe your kid will be a pastor one day. Uh, but that was me. And I sat by my mom uh, during the service. And 
That's awesome. If it's for me, I'm not here. Um, <laughs> sorry, I can't help it. But I was sitting by my mom, and I heard the gospel like I had before and met Jesus, and he saved me. And so then I got fired up whenever I was like seven years old. And so um, that's when I became a Christian. I don't know if, if for you it was seven, maybe it was when you were 70, maybe you were 50, maybe 20, whenever it was. Uh, do you remember what it was like when you were first giddy about following Jesus? You remember what it was like whenever you uh, read your Bible and you, you just couldn't get enough of it? It made you feel so dumb, but you kept reading it anyways. And it's all you talked about. And you started bringing people to church with you. And people started meeting Jesus because of you. And if that was here at Grace Point Church, you got to baptize your friends because you shared the gospel with them and they believed. And so you felt all of that giddiness. Now, part of that is like practical. It's a new thing. It's kind of like having a crush in your life or you find a new restaurant. It's, it's, it's what you're all about until you've had it every Every day for so many, you know, I, I understand the, the practical part, but part of it is also spiritual. What you're doing when you first meet Jesus is you're waging war and you don't even know it. You're waging war. You're engaged in a spiritual battle, the war that Paul is talking about in these verses that we're going to wrap up this letter to the church at Ephesus over. And then what happens is you take your first vacation and you didn't go to church, and you realize, I lived through that. I don't feel like God's mad at me, and he's not. I'll be, I'll be straight with you. He, he don't relate to us in that way when we're his kids. He will correct us. Like it will be unpleasant sometimes because we have a good dad uh, for us, but, but he doesn't relate to us through, uh, I, don't, I can't believe you would ever do that. He don't do the stuff we do. He doesn't do that. He doesn't manipulate us. He moves us by his spirit. You remember the first time that you were like, I just don't uh, man, I don't know if I'm going to be generous right now. We got some stuff coming on. We got a vacation we want to take. I don't know if we're going to tithe. Or, you know, your prayer life starts to drift. And next thing you know, you're saying stuff like, you know, I just, I don't know if that, if that pastor really feeds me anymore in his sermons. And, and man, I don't even know if those people even miss me when I'm not there. And, and you get really, really comfortable in a life that used to make you really uncomfortable when you were opening your life up to other Christians, opening your Bible up, and you weren't just reading the Bible, but the Bible was reading you. And just to, just to put that out there, like there's gonna come a day when, and what Paul's writing about, the day of temptation and accusation comes by the enemy. Last week, we kind of gave an origin story of Satan and, and, and his schemes. His schemes are accusation and temptation. And there's gonna come a day where he accuses you and wants you to relate to God through fear, guilt, and shame. He wants to tempt you to believe that God couldn't love you or forgive you for all that you've done. He couldn't possibly use you and your story to further his kingdom. Um, he, you know, all these days come, and, and he's going to tell us, stand firm in that day and use things that you've been provided, uh, the provisions that, that Christ has given you. But I think what we kind of think is that those days come in days of conflict. Like, like we need to, we, we try to be on high alert when we find out we have cancer. We want to be on high alert when we find out our kids are in rebellion. We want to be on high alert whenever we find out that uh, our spouse, uh, you know, may, may be walking out and things aren't as good at home as what I thought they might be. But what I've seen, if I've seen anything as a pastor and someone's truly walking with Jesus as a Christian, when all that conflict is in your life, it kind of squeezes out the glory of God and it squeezes out good stuff in your soul. You end up on your face before God. I'll never forget one of my uh, buddies told me, you know, he's, he thought he's losing his marriage and he's out in the backyard. He's, you know, out there, it's the middle of the night. You know, his neighbors are probably trying to sleep and they hear him out there crying. 
you know, which I, if Carrie told me she might be leaving me, I'd be like, I'm gonna wear my underwear on the outside of my pants. I'll eat nothing but Eidos, whatever food ends with Eidos for the rest of my life. I need, not just for those reasons, but those would be a couple of things that would happen. I would be crying too. And he said, as he was out in the middle of his yard, begging God, like, God, why would you do this? Why would you let this happen? And then he realized, I'm probably right where you want me to be. I'm in the middle of your lap, in your arms, begging you to move in my life, and I'm fully dependent upon you. And I don't know if you've noticed, but whenever you have conflict, you, you tend to run to the Father, and you run for his comfort in your uncomfortable circumstances. And what you might notice is when you are comfortable is when the enemy strikes, so the day that you need to you know, stand there for is probably not on the day you find out you have an illness that's terminal. You're probably on that day, are, are, you're aware, you're, you're with God's people, you're in God's word, you're preparing yourself to be comforted by Holy Spirit. It's probably the season in life when the weather's a bit nice and you're taking lots of trips, you're not gathering with God's people, you haven't been in the word together because you're hauling your kids to games constantly, uh, you found good reasons not to go to group, um, you're, you know, you're trying to get out of debt and you realize, I, I'm, gonna get, I'm doing Dave Ramsey, but I'm not gonna tithe for a while or give, and you're just letting your guard down and you're setting down truth, you're setting down righteousness, you're setting down peace, you're setting down salvation. So now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look in verse 14. Paul says to stand therefore because you're going to be um, declared war upon and you might fall, okay? Having fastened. So the idea is the things we're about to read about, or, or Eric's already read them to us, but that you already have these. So you don't have to go find these things. You don't have to build these things. You don't achieve these things. These things have been achieved for us in Christ. And he's using imagery like a soldier wearing their uniform for war. Um, and I don't think we have to get too carried away in the metaphor. I think the emphasis isn't so much that it's a belt and it's a breastplate and it's a, and it's a helmet and all that. I think it's important that we know that it's truth, it's righteousness, it's peace, it's salvation, that sort of thing. So he says, having fastened on. So, so wearing the stuff that Christ has already given you through his life, death, and resurrection, fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So let's just stop there for a second. That's the armor. So I want to talk to you about the armor that we have through Christ, the weapons we've been given through Christ, and then how to wage war. We'll get, we'll get there. And I got kind of bogged down in some stories in, in the first service and like halfway told them and then completed a story I didn't even tell. And then I like said something about my mom making my life hard and that wasn't even true. It just made people laugh. So I had to be like, hey, that wasn't even true. Everyone looked at me like, what else isn't true? You know, so... <laughs> So yeah, it was, and I'm not even on cough medicine today, so I don't know what the deal is. But anyways, thank you, thank you. So let's just work through the stuff that we're supposed to wear, that's supposed to protect us, be a barrier against us and the accusations and temptations of the enemy if we are the people of God. Well, let's first of all talk about where this armor comes from and how we get it. By nature, it's something that we have received. It's not something that we achieve. We have received truth through revelation from Christ. We have received righteousness by the life that Christ has lived, his faithfulness to the Father. We have received peace because of the work of Jesus, and we have received salvation. We don't save ourselves. We trust in the work of Jesus. And so it's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that accomplishes this stuff that we have and that we wear like armor. And so Jesus came and lived a life. God became man. In the beginning was the word of God. The word of God says into existence all things. And we believe the word of God put on flesh. That's called the incarnation of God. And he came to live with us and dwell with us. He was like us, but without sin. 
He wasn't like a demigod. He wasn't half God and half man like Hercules. He's fully God and fully man, which means he was capable of giving in to temptation, but he didn't give in to temptation. So he was completely man that like when he was swinging hammers with his dad, he probably busted his knuckles. Like he was, you know, the way I like to tell it is his dad, um, Joseph was, was, you know, his, his stepdad, he was fully man and not fully God. So like the way I like to think about it as a little boy, Jesus would spill the milk. Uh, if they stopped at a convenience store on a road trip, Joseph probably went in and got the kids something to drink. Jesus opens his and he shook it up and it went everywhere, but Jesus didn't sin. Those aren't breaking commandments. Joseph probably sinned. He probably broke commandments because his car got ruined, you know? All right, that was a good one. That was a good one and you didn't give it to me. But Jesus never sinned. He was completely human, had to learn how to walk, had to learn how to talk, worked a job with his dad, all that stuff, but he never broke a commandment, not a single commandment. You and I can't live a day without breaking a commandment. Jesus lived at least 30-something years on this earth, never broke a commandment. That's where righteousness comes from. So you and I focus on morality a lot of times, and morality is when guilty people do good deeds. That's what morality is. Righteousness is complete innocence. It's no spot or blemish. Jesus never failed at keeping all the commandments before the Father. That's his life. With his death, it wasn't just a good man falsely accused and um, <clears throat> executed of a, an un, a wrongful death. That's all true. It's also Jesus going to, a, to be sacrificed by his dad, by his dad pouring wrath out on Christ. Jesus pays in full for our sins. So we don't make light of sin. We make much of the work of Jesus. His life eclipses our sin. His blood is a sacrifice for our sin. When we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins because of him absolving us from our sins by paying in full for them at the cross. And then he raises from the dead. If he didn't stay, or if he stayed in the grave, then he's just a Tupac figure. He's just a John Lennon figure. He's just a John F. Kennedy. He's just an Abraham Lincoln. He's a guy who did some stuff that we're still talking about a couple thousand years later. But he raised from the dead. I believe in the, people ask me like, why are you a pastor? I'm like, because I believe Jesus raised from the dead. Why do you preach sermons? Because I believe Jesus raised from the dead. Like, I don't fully understand uh, all of the Bible. I don't understand, like, if we go back, we use hermeneutics and try to understand the seven-day creation and was it 24-hour day and this and that. We can have those discussions, but I believe that if there was nothing, then there was something. Because God said, let there be, and there was. That's what I believe. I believe that if the Bible says the sun stood still, if you want to start trying to figure out if we're flat earth or if we're moving through space at such a rate or gravity and all that, so I, fine, whatever, but it happened because I believe in the resurrection. Yeah. Jesus walked on water. You say, you believe the weird stuff too? I do, because Jesus raised from the dead. And Jesus talked about this stuff. If, he, if I won't believe he raised from the dead, I'm gonna believe the stuff he said. Now I'm starting to rap, that's funny. <laughs> but that's why I live my life the way I do, is because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So that means that we're really forgiven and we're really set free from what we've said and done and we've been transformed from the inside out. And so he's telling us about this armor we would wear. It's a metaphor. But these are the things that we have because of Jesus. The first thing he tells us that we have is truth. You and I were living deceived lives like our first parents, Adam and Eve, before the revelation of Christ came into our life and we could see the deception that we had been believing. How many of you had ever had a friend who was a deceiver or a business partner who was a deceiver and later you realized, of course they wanted to keep my books. 
you know, of course they wanted me to make those decisions. I was deceived. I was making decisions on bad information. And that's what the enemy does. He deceives us. And he doesn't just tell blatant lies. He tells things that are almost true. They're true enough that they sound right, but they're not. They lead to death. We have truth. We have the capacity to see the delusions and see the deception of the enemy, uh, the darts headed our ways. We have righteousness. What that means is, is two things. It's a verdict in the throne room of heaven that your name is recorded in what's called the Lamb's Book of Life if you have trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the throne room of God, the same voice that said, let there be something when there was nothing, has declared your innocence. A gavel has fallen and you are innocent. Not because you used to be bad and now you're good. Not because you're not capable of being not like, man, you can drive in traffic. You know those four-way stops? I don't know about you, but it just goes all through me. Like we have laws and rules and people have the right of way. And it bugs me when someone pulls up, they should go, but they wave me on because they're scared to death. I'm going to hit their car. And I'm like, you just made me break the law. You did not do me a favor. We broke the law, bro. That's not cool. That is not cool. Anyways, I don't even know why I told you that. Doesn't make any sense, but it was a good story. It was good. Um, but we have a verdict in heaven where we've been declared innocent, even though, oh yeah, because we can sin while we're driving. Even though we are still capable of sinning, that's not the verdict in heaven. We're declared innocent. It's also our identity. It is who we are. And some of you are not wearing your righteousness. You still believe you're guilty of your sin. You still believe you have shame. And the decisions you make is because you're still trying to remove guilt in your life. Let Christ in. Let him in. Stop hiding some stuff. Confess some stuff. Not just to, you don't have to get on Facebook and be like, hey, nobody knew this. You don't have to do that. That's not what I mean. But find people who love you and love Jesus and open your life up so that the, the work Christ has done can get all the way into your heart, not just in your head. So righteousness is your identity and your, and your verdict of your life. You are innocent and right with God, and Satan will make you believe you're not when you are. The other thing we have is peace. Now, this one's always interesting to me because I think when we think of peace, we think of peace in our circumstances. And you'll notice that when you start following Jesus around, your life is not as peaceful as it used to be. Just read the Gospels and, you know, people are following around Jesus and some of the guys thought, he's going to be the next president. We're all going to be in his cabinet. It's going to be awesome. And they're like, people are trying to kill us. Life is hard. We're homeless now. Like, man, like how did we, you know, we are a homeless ministry because we're homeless now, you know? Like that is following Jesus around. You won't always have peace in relationships. Jesus will sometimes cause division in relationships. Show up at Thanksgiving the first time you're a Christian and the rest of your family isn't, and they will think that you are chasing Bigfoot around now. You know, that can happen. And so I, I get, I, it, it tickles me and I'm happy for you, but a lot of you will say that when you know God is calling you to do something, you have an absolute peace about it. And I am jealous of that. I don't know where I'm supposed to be jealous, but I am. This is kind of what my life feels like. Like every five years or so, or however often it is, God will say, hey, you're gonna do this. And I'm like, well, that seems dumb. That sounds like it would scare me to death. Like, I know that's why we're gonna do it, man. You're gonna have to trust the spirit. Like, I don't know if you've seen this video floating around on the socials, uh, but uh, the video of the guy who, who runs that uh, ride and they, he gets the, the couple set in the seat and it doesn't have a shoulder thing. It just has a seat belt. And every time he'll go, oh, I forgot to put on your shoulder straps. And they go, what? And then they hit the button and they just free fall for like 150 feet. 
And he looks in the camera and goes, got him. That is the way the Holy Spirit relates to me. That is my life. And I am happy for you if it's not like that. But I, and it could just be my personality profile. But the peace that we have is not, it's not in our circumstances, but it's in the presence of God. You'll know that the cliche, it's kind of cliche, but it's true that, you know, we, our peace isn't that the storm is always gone, but it's what Christ is with us in the storm. That's what peace looks like. So the peace that we have with God, though, is that we were at war with him. We were his enemies. Before he was our dad, he was our judge. And we were in a war over glory. We took things like money, sex, and power, and we worshiped those things like they were creator and they were gods and they consumed our life. And those were the things that gave us identity and pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment and superiority to the inferior in our life. And then we realized that we need to repent. And when we repent of those things, we put Jesus on the throne of our hearts and we use things like money, sex, and power in the right way inside life-giving boundaries to where that rolls up in the glory of Jesus and we worship the creator of those creators things. And so we were at war before over glory. Now we give God glory. We sing songs to Jesus. Our lives bend around Jesus. We worship him and we have peace that God has moved from our judge who's going to condemn us for our sin to our dad who gives good gifts to his kids. The next thing that we have is our salvation. We are rescued men and rescued women. We are free from shame and we are free from guilt. We have been saved from hell. We've been saved from God by God. He's not our judge anymore. He's our dad and he loves us and we are no longer in our sin and shame. See, we will run to things. We will run to things that promise us truth, but they deceive. We will run to things that promise us an identity, but it's still not righteousness. We're not innocent before God. We will run to things that promise us peace, but we can still have enmity with God if we are not his sons and daughters. And we prom things promise us that they will remove our shame, but they only intensify it over time if we do not wear the armor that we have that was given to us from Christ. So that's our armor. He says, in all circumstances, in verse 16, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So I told you about your armor, truth, righteousness, peace, salvation. You have weapons as well. You have stuff to put in your hands, defense and offense, one for protection, one for advancing, and it's faith, and it's the word of God. Now, people will say things like, if you just have enough faith, you could have a private jet. If you just have enough faith, then you wouldn't have got sick. If you just have enough faith, you wouldn't believe people who say, if you just had enough faith, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, I understand faith is important. Faith is a gift. There, some of us have more faith in, in Jesus and the promises of God than others. Some of us are good at faithing in Jesus. Some of us are bad at faithing in Jesus. I understand that concept. But it's not just faith that is important. It's the object of our faith that is important. So for example, you use faith all the time. You are faithing right now in that chair that you will not have an embarrassing moment during this service. How many of you have ever had an embarrassing moment by sitting in a chair that collapsed? How many of you have ever, you do this, you know, here's how we use faith. I don't know why, but like when we all start out, we think we can't afford things like stepladders. Remember that? So you used what? Chairs. What kind of chairs did you have? You lived in a one-bedroom apartment with red shag carpet and olive green appliances and black countertops. So you use a folding metal chair. Remember changing light bulbs in the folding metal chair? Oh, you had faith, buddy. <laughs> but you put your feet on the wrong side of that seat and you weren't standing on the chair, you were standing through the chair. Who knows what I'm talking about? See, yeah. So then you get smart 
and you stand on the right spot of that chair. And then you like turn 30 and you're like, I think we can buy one of those step ladders. I think that's what we'll use to change light bulbs now. You find wisdom because she's calling out for you is what the Bible says. But we trust in Jesus. We faith in Jesus. Some of us are faithing in politics and who the president's gonna be. Some of us are faithing in getting a raise at work and how that's gonna shape our identity. Some of us are faithing in a marriage. We, we are lonely. We want someone to love us. Some of us are faithing in our kids. Don't do that. Never do that. Those guys are little deceptive things, you know? Yeah, don't do that. I love my kids. They're all here today. They're awesome. But I don't faith in them. I faith in Jesus. Some of you are faithing in your dad in the way you need to faith in Christ. Some of you are faithing in our jobs like we need to faith in Jesus. Only the resurrection of Christ, only his life and death can give us our identity. He's the only one who will be faithful when we are unfaithful. He's the only one whose promises are always true. So your weapon is faith in Jesus, believing his promises. If you need a place to go get some promises, go to Romans chapter eight, start in verse one, read it all the way through in that chapter. There's tons of promises for you. Believe the promises of God. Satan will tell you on your day of temptation and accusation, those promises are for everyone but you because you did this, and God, that, that ain't even in the Bible, you know? Uh, you've said this. How could you love God and say this? You need to believe the promises of God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's correction, there's not condemnation. Nothing can separate you from the love of God through Christ our Lord. That all things that happen to you will work out for your good even if you don't understand how. Doesn't say all things will be good, it says all things will work out for the good. Believe the promises of God. Your other weapon is the word of God. I'm gonna do my best to tell a story right that I didn't plan to tell in the first service, but I was all over the place with that story. I, everyone seemed to like, yeah, that was good. And I'm like, I don't know how. I only gave you all like half the information. So, I'm gonna do, so I hadn't been a pastor for very long. I was a much younger man. And I had a lady in our church come to me with concerns. She handed me a very thick book uh, that I ended up using as a doorstopper, just to be completely honest with you, about how anything but the King James Bible is new age and leading people astray and all that stuff. Like that was a big deal in the 80s, especially in the 90s. Um, but I'm pastoring in the 2000s and I thought we we're behind that. And she's like really concerned. She hands me that book and a cassette, a VHS cassette. Who remembers VHS? Remember Be Kind Rewind? Some of y'all are like, I don't even know what that is. Man, go to Goodwill, buy one of those things and, and dig up some home movies. You'll, you'll learn what those are. But, um, but she was concerned and losing, she thought that God's word was losing some credibility. And uh, she was telling me how I can't believe, you, I think at that time I used the new King James. I use the ESV now, I love it. It is uh, far superior to the other inferior translation. I'm sorry, it's, it's just a good one. It's a good one, that's all I'm trying to say. It's a good one. You know, our local seminary, Phoenix Seminary, we got some guys there who worked on it. It's all good, I like it, it's good. Uh, but you can uh, read the inferior ones if you want to. <laughs> I really am kidding. I really don't believe that. I just like the ESV. But um, but I was freaked out at the time about this lady and she said, hey, anything but the King James is not the way to go. They've changed some stuff. And just to tell you some stuff I told her, like she was like, what about that story? Like, I don't know if you've read in the gospels. I can't remember which one. I'm shooting from the hip now, just to be completely honest with you. But the story where the woman's caught in adultery, they bring her before Jesus and Jesus bends down and starts drawing stuff in the sand. And people think like, I think he's drawing the sins of those men in the sand or who knows what it is. We don't know what he draws in the sand because we don't even know if that really happened. I don't mean to say that to freak you out. I'm just saying, we don't know if that really happened. And then it says, Every, let you who are without sin cast the first stone. And then what do they all do? They drop the stones. Man, that sermon preaches good 
when you hand out rocks and then at that moment you say, everybody drop them in. And especially if you, not in here. Somebody did that in here one time. We have concrete floors. It just sounded like the building was falling down. <laughs> but you do that on a good pier and beam old school church and everyone drops those rocks, you'll have a moment. You think we're having a revival. It's a great sermon. It's a great story. Uh, but there's an asterisk by it. And here's why. If you go back, so here's how we make the Bible. We find scrolls that, that were hidden in caves in different places, and we find them. And here's the crazy thing. Out of all these years, I'm talking thousands of years. This spans over thousands of years, 66 books of the Bible, written over thousands of years. People who don't know each other, people who ain't related to each other, people who, you know, you know uh, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic people, all spanning all over this history, writing stuff, recording stuff. And then when we find scrolls that, that are copies of other scrolls, and they keep getting older and older and dating back further and further. There might be some words misspelled, but they never change the story. They never change the story. Now, here's what we found with that example I'm telling you about, that when you go back further in those scrolls, that story's not in there. So that's why they put the asterisk in the Bible, like in the ESV or different translation. Why is it in there? Because they're just trying to be, have integrity and say, we just want you to know that in the oldest scrolls we find, that story's not in there. At some point, they started putting that story in there. Maybe because that it, Jesus did that and someone was reading that like, oh, we need to put this in there. So they, we don't know why. But it's something Jesus would say. It's something Jesus would do. It doesn't contradict anything else in the rest of Scripture. So that's an example of like, oh, okay. I'm, okay, I understand. So another one would be uh, the King James thing. She said, the King James version is the only version. I said, do you realize that King James is a translation? that the original language was Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And then at one time, it was all just in Latin. And that's why we had the Great Reformation. And Martin Luther got that sucker translated. And he translated it from Latin to German. It wasn't even English for a long time. Like Moses wasn't saying, you know, thus thou sayest, you know, all that stuff. We translated into King James, which was a 12th grade reading level, and it was uh, translated to be read publicly. If you ever thought, this is so poetic, like I want King James read at my funeral because it sounds so poetic. It's because it was translated that way on purpose. It's supposed to do that. And so then people started saying, you know, we want to read it and understand it. So they translated it. They didn't translate it out of King James into new languages. They said, let's go back to the Greek, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and here's why I like the ESV. It is an academic translation. It is a scholarly translation that is word for word. They literally go in there and say, what is the Greek word? Let's make an English word. What is the Hebrew word? Let's make an English word. Uh, translations like the NIV, and I am getting somewhere with this, I, I promise. The NIV is more thought for thought. What does it say in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic? What are, they tr what are they getting at? So let's say that. So if you ever have somebody who says, well, that's an inferior, you know, someone like me, the reason is because it's not word for word. It's thought for thought. It's kind of a paraphrase of the word for word, which is fine. You're going to meet Jesus in the NIV. You're, you can preach sermons from the NIV. It's totally cool. I ain't busting on you. The reason I say all that is because what can happen is you can start to think it doesn't have integrity. And sometimes we'll take the culture and we'll lay the Bible across the culture. We'll go back to the 1950s and say, like when we just recently did uh, Wives Submit to Your Husbands, and we'll say like, hey, that went bad in the 50s. If that's what the Bible, how about we say that isn't what the Bible said. The 1950s may have been more chauvinistic, but that isn't what God was saying. And then we could go back a couple hundred years when we read about bond servants and slaves and masters in different translations and say like, man, the Bible condones slavery. No, we don't lay the Bible across our culture and read that preloaded with our definitions of what the words in the Bible are. We take the Bible, we lay our culture across the Bible and the Bible calls sin out of our culture. 
The Bible doesn't sin against our culture. The cultural sins against the Bible. Why do I say all that? Because here's how we wage war. Here's how we wage war. He tells us the word of God and praying, relentlessly praying. How do you wage war? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That's how you wage war. When do you, how do you read your Bible? Are you only using it to like argue with someone at work? Like that's not the best use of it. It's, that's good, that's fun. Who doesn't love a good debate or argument? You know, If somebody ain't throwing coffee cups every once in a while, are we even living? I understand. But you should read the Bible for you and let the Bible read you. If you're reading the Bible right, you're not reading it for information alone, you're reading it for transformation. It's changing your life. How? Not just downloading information, but, but faith and repentance. If you read the Bible, you'll see the beauty of your Savior, you'll find your sin, you'll confess it, and you'll repent, you'll begin to change. That's how you wage war. Satan deceives, but truth is in the word of God. Satan will tell you, uh, you know, like, oh, you have a father wound, um, God didn't make you like he was supposed to, you're missing pieces or missing parts or have parts you weren't supposed to have, and I need to change. No, no. what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I'm broken, I'm sinful, but I'm made in the image of God. Okay, that's what the Bible says. Satan will make you feel like, man, God saves everybody but you. You sin like this. And then he'll take a verse like in 1st or 2nd Corinthians that says, do you not know that murderers, adulterers, fornicators, uh, homosexuals, and he goes all the way, all the way on this list, says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Satan will put a period there and say, see, told you. What are you doing going to that church? But Paul writes, and such were some of you. But you've been transformed. You've been washed by the Word of God and the work of Jesus, you've been changed. Read your Bible. Some of you are podcasting like crazy. You're on news channels like crazy. You're on Instagram like crazy. You're on tactic talk tickers like crazy. You got time. You got time to do that. Read the Word of God. You say it makes me feel dumb. Then you're doing it right. That's why you have a pastor. That's why you have a church. That's why you have a community group. That's why you have commentaries, get an get a ESV study Bible or an NIV, if that's what you got to do. But open your Bible and open your life into community. Be known by other people. Let people speak the word of God into your life and pray. When do you pray? Are your public, as often as you pray in public, whatever that might be, over a meal, reading scripture, when someone calls on you to pray, like what, do you have a personal prayer life with the Lord? Man, some of you are freaking out over your kids, pray. Some of you are worried about your marriage, pray. Some of you are worried about the country and politics, then pray. Be, yes, be responsible, but pray. The heaviest lifting of all we do is prayer. Somebody after the first service just came up to me and said, hey, what would you recommend I do to talk to a family member about believing in Jesus and uh, coming, to church, coming to church with us. I was like, well, first of all, you know, don't be mean to them. That helps. Second of all, don't try to fix them. That helps. Build a meaningful relationship. Gain influence in their life. But more than anything, pray. Pray. The heaviest lifting of all we do is pray. How do we wage war? We read our Bible and we pray. And we do that with other people. The good news is you're doing it right now. You're waging war against the accusation and the temptation of the enemy. 
And then Paul gives an example. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as, boldly as I ought to speak. Paul's saying, I'm tempted on my day of accusation and temptation to not be bold and be inferior and care about what these people think of me and I want to be popular with the culture and, and I want these powerful leaders, like I feel tempted to say what they wanna hear to be released, but I'm here to preach the gospel and it may cost me my head. And if you know church history, it did for Paul. So I don't want this to be a do better speech. I don't want you to leave thinking, well, I don't read enough. I don't pray enough. I got, good. I got my do better speech. Now I'm gonna go not read enough or pray enough this week, come back and do it again next Sunday. I don't want that for you. I want so much more for you. I'm telling you also, some of you may not have truth, righteousness, peace, salvation. You may not have the weapons of faith and the word of God, at least not the way that you should, and you're trying to achieve those things rather than receive those things. Man, as I was thinking through this sermon, and we got a little more time, I'm gonna say this because we don't have another service coming in after this one, so we'll settle in for a minute. But I think back to the story of David and Goliath. And, I, and we're all prone to read the story of David and Goliath like we are David and Goliath is whatever it is that we're facing. Maybe it's cancer or debt or the in-laws or whatever it is, you know. That was funny too. But, but you look at that thing and you think, man, if I pick up the five stones of courage and commitment and character and channel locks, I don't know, and throw them at my giant, then I'll overcome and that's just, that's a humanistic way to read it. I ain't mad at you if you've read it that way. It makes sense. It's a logical conclusion. But that story is a shadow of the substance of Jesus. It's typology. David in that story is a type of Christ figure for Israel to set the scene. What, what would happen is instead of everybody going to war and everybody getting killed, they would have like, okay, let's have our UFC octagon. You take your super soldier, I'll take my super soldier, they'll fight to the death, and whoever soldier wins, we get credit for the war, or for the battle, and we'll all go home, and we win, and we advance, and we get your stuff, you know? That's what they did. So they had Goliath, this great monster of a man, and David shows up just to, like, see his family. Like, he, it was weird. Like, now, like, we send letters to people at war, but back then, you could just show up on the battlefield. Sup, Mom, made some bread. Here's some tools from Dad. What's going on? Who's that guy? Seems like a big dude. Y'all are all scared of him. And so all the soldiers are shaking in their armor, terrified of Goliath. No one will step up to fight him. David says, I'll fight him. They put him in, they put all this stuff on him, the, you know, the, um, the soldier suit, the whatever, the armor. They put the armor on him. The soldier suit, my gosh. They put the armor on him. <laughs> and he tries to go out there like Iron Man and it don't work. And he takes it all off and he takes, uh, you know, his slingshot and a rock, and he slays the giant. And so if you're looking for yourself in that story, you and I are Israel shaking in our armor, terrified of our enemy who is Satan's sin and death. And David is Jesus going before us, achieving the win, achieving the peace, achieving the salvation for us, achieving the armor, and then he gives it to us to wear. 
So you cannot have what you have not received. And I'm asking you to see David and Goliath like Jesus and the cross. Jesus goes and he lives a life you and I fail to live. He dies to death. We deserve to die. And he raised from the dead like David raising Goliath's head and saying, the victory is ours. We've won the war. We've won. Live from all that Christ has given. Let's pray.